This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhume.org. From KVPR in Fresno. On this week's The Other California, an oil town takes issue with the state's green energy plans. Tap will shrivel. I mean, I can't fathom what we'll do for ourselves. And a high school foods teacher helps students understand each other through recipes. Native American, Samoan, Oaxacan. He honestly wanted to know more about Oaxacan, you know, styles and their foods and stuff, their cultures, traditions and stuff like that. And that made me honestly proud of Oaxacans. It's all about responding to the changing world as we head to the small rural town of Taft in Kern County. I'm Alice Daniel, and this is... El otro California. I live California, California, California. 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 I live California. The oil pump jacks that dot the arid brown elk hills outside of Taft and bob up and down seem somehow alive. Like giant praying mantises, says Mark Arax, the writer we met in last week's episode. I can easily see that, but they also make me think of the long necks of giraffes bending forward. In my car driving on this curvy road, I pretend like I'm on a safari, looking through my window at this vast herd of metal creatures on the land. I cannot count them all. If the San Joaquin Valley feels different from the rest of the state, Taft feels like another planet. Some 40 miles from Bakersfield, the town sits at the very southwestern edge of the valley over a vast reservoir of petroleum. Taft, population around 9,000, only exists because oil exists. In 1912, Taft was described as perhaps the liveliest town in the state, a frontier community of the sort that movie fans once expected Spencer Tracy and Clark Gable to brawl in. That's according to the late writer and historian Gerald Haslam, whose essay, Oil Town Rumble, The Young Men of Taft, appears in his book, The Other California. You may remember from our first episode, that Gerald coined the phrase to more aptly describe the valley. He goes on to write, beer was for a long time actually cheaper than water in Taft, which was populated largely by young men during its early years. Young men given to male diversions. It may not have been sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but beer, brawls, and bordellos kept Taft busy. Casual violence was a way of life. Named after the 27th U.S. president, Taft was incorporated in 1910. Of course, it's changed tremendously since those early frontier years, but one thing remains the same. It's still an oil town through and through, and the people who live here now want it to stay that way. KVPR's Carrie Klein reports. Taft might be small, but on this Friday night, it's buzzing. It's cruise night when car collectors show off their antique pickup trucks and custom rat rods. People gather on the sidewalks like it's a parade. 
But just before the cars show up, something else catches the crowd's attention, a standoff in front of the old Fox Theater. Think cowboy boots and 10-gallon hats, bandits in all black, and a sheriff's posse wearing gold stars. Let's make sure those guys ain't sneaking in on us anywhere around here. They might. The tension builds, and then... Let's get them, boys! The bullets are blank, of course, and the whole shootout is a game. Guys, put your hands up, put your guns down. It's a preview, in fact, of an Old West-themed festival that happens here every five years. Brian Selman's playing the sheriff. But it's just a really good time for everybody to get together and promote the town's history and the uh, oil industry. Um, so, yeah. The oil industry. The festival is called Oil Dorado because this city was built on top of Midway Sunset, the state's most productive oil field. It's the epicenter of California's oil industry, which is actually the seventh largest in the country. Another fun fact, the gusher that led to this city's founding inspired the movie There Will Be Blood. Today, the economy here is still built on oil. Walking down the street from Black Gold Brewing Company, I hit monuments of drilling equipment on every corner, even a replica pump jack outside the Best Western. And locals feel everything here owes its existence to the stuff. It made me who I am. I grew up here. Oil raised my family, gave me an education. It's in your toothbrush. It's in your floss, in your basketballs, in your soccer balls. Oil means everything. Oil is a way of life. That's public relations expert Chris Lowe, dental hygienist Julie Ortlieb, and Josh Bryant, a city council member and school district executive. They all came downtown for the shows. But the future of oil is murky. Extraction and processing are major sources of greenhouse gas emissions, and petroleum-powered cars and trucks fuel the state's chronic air pollution. As a result, Governor Gavin Newsom has promised no in-state oil and gas production, period, by 2045. And locals are angry, including Renee Hill. Taft is very upset by what's going on in Sacramento. Renee used to be on the city council. Now she sells antiques and flowers on the main drag. On big nights, like this one, she rolls a fire pit out front. She loves this town. I'm a Taft girl. My dad was a doctor here. I grew up here. But a future without oil? That might be progress for the climate, but it's hard for Renee to imagine. Taft will shrivel. I mean, I can't fathom what we'll do for ourselves. It's not just the billions of dollars in county revenue, the tens of thousands of well-paying jobs, or even the millions in oil property taxes that fund Taft schools. Standing at a massive bronze statue of an oil derrick downtown, Taft Mayor Dave Knorr points out that oil companies support community events and workers mentor high school students in a college prep program called the Oil Technology Academy. The producers and the companies that are a part of it are much more than employers. They're community partners and they have their fingerprints on every beneficial program that takes place in this valley as well as in this community. Many in Taft and beyond feel California needs the industry going forward. So many, in fact, that when oil officials from Sacramento agreed to come to a county supervisor's meeting in early 2020, record numbers of Kern residents crammed into the Bakersfield chambers and spilled onto the sidewalk. Dozens spoke in support of the industry. A meeting that would normally last two hours stretched on for more than six. One speaker was Les Clark who, let's just say, isn't very fond of Newsom. I call him Governor Newsom. He's a longtime oil man in Taft who now leads the Independent Oil Producers Alliance. He spoke to me after the meeting. I, mean, I don't like it, rhetoric. I think it's uh, foolishness 
for people to think that they're going to do away uh, with fossil fuel. A lot of people I talk to use words like foolish to describe the state's take on oil. Some of the $65 million that Newsom proposes to support the industry in transition would train displaced oil workers to abandon wells. The mayor calls that an absolute insult because the industry's already been doing that for years. Similarly, Fred Holmes, the owner of a small oil producer and a well-known Taft philanthropist, argues that ditching California's petroleum is just nimbyism. We'll be exporting the industry, he says, to countries with fewer environmental protections and civil rights. Us citizens, including yourself, we're not going to give up our energy. Are you going to give up your energy? (laughs) No, you're going to support Saudi Arabia. Something else I learned, Kern is also the state's largest producer of renewables. It's home to a quarter of our solar and more than half of our wind power. But will the state really help Taft transition from oil to green energy? The mayor is skeptical at best. That lip service about replacing the jobs that are being lost is just that. It's lip service. Those jobs and the economic impact to local communities are just as intermittent as the energy they produce. For now, Taft leaders spend a lot of time in Sacramento, lobbying for a longer timeline to keep the industry, their livelihood, alive. For The Other California, I'm Carrie Klein in Taft. The Oil and Technology Academy that Carrie mentions in her story takes place at Taft Union High School, a beautiful Art Deco building that's been the set for a number of movies, including the 1986 comedy Wildcats with Robin Williams and Kurt Russell. The Academy has been a great way for students to make connections, prepare for professional life, and learn about the types of jobs available in the oil industry. But there's another program at Taft High that's also about preparing students for the real world in ways you might not expect. So we'll leave oil behind. Well, at least that kind of oil. And we have this vinaigrette that that he's prepared and take you to a culinary class where students learn to appreciate the history and culture of food and the role it plays in helping them connect to and understand one another. Come back to our bowl, and then let's start incorporating the ingredients. Let's get that mozzarella, some olives. Carlos Chavira is the foods teacher at Taft High. He's also a chef who runs his own catering company. Right now, he's holding a large metal bowl as a student adds chunks of mozzarella and some olives to a colorful mix of cherry tomatoes, chopped cucumbers, capers, hunks of bread. And then let's get some of those bell peppers, red onions. Next comes the plating, a plop of ricotta, and voila, panella in Italian bread salad. As he and the students set the meals on a table, Carlos reminds them of why they're all here. We all get to sit down together, various cultures, various ethnicities, and have a conversation about our ancestors and be grateful and thankful. About 150 students at Taft High take food classes each year. Advanced students like Chase Gratt can earn credit through Bakersfield College. Chase says before taking classes with Carlos, he never really thought about food in terms of history or culture. 
And he's learned the value in sitting down with people and hearing their stories. And just having a meal and then talking with them, it can really change your perspective on the world. Chase says he now pays more attention in particular to what his girlfriend's family cooks for dinner. Her parents came from Mexico. And he's tried lots of traditional dishes, including birria, a stew with marinated meat and dried chili peppers. Another example, he says, you take the hump of the cow. You, you dry it up and you slice it very thin so it's almost like a beef jerky. And then you put it into uh, with eggs and certain seasonings and stuff. And it's a very popular um, Mexican dish. Machaca. Machaca. Machaca, Carlos says, and proceeds to tell the students that it evolved from an indigenous calorie-rich food of dried meat and dried berries called pemmican, and that when the Spaniards came to the Americas, they learned how to make it. Carlos, who is 43, moved to Taft 30 years ago. The town was primarily white back then, and it still is, but he says as a Mexican-American, he felt welcomed, and he really likes living here. Still, he recognizes that Taft, like most places in America, has a troubled history with race. I just want to take you back to Gerald Haslam's essay on Taft for a few moments. He writes about one incident in 1975 that garnered national attention when a mob of white men went after black athletes at Taft College over an alleged relationship between a black man and a white woman. Gerald wrote, most blacks wisely hid until police could be summoned, but one football player tried to reason with the crowd, only to find himself literally running for his life until a white teammate rescued him in a car. Afterward, about a dozen students were escorted out of town for their security. A couple of days later, the white editor of Taft's daily midway driller, Dennis McCall, was assaulted by a white man because of an editorial he wrote condemning the attack on the black students as a sickening reminder of our earlier days when a local faction of the Ku Klux Klan tried to force this city to accept its version of justice. He wrote, the ideal of equal rights means nothing when ignorance and superstition prevail. These days, the kids in Carlos's classes are from lots of places, like Samoa, Oaxaca, and other parts of Mexico. Carlos says he takes advantage of the diversity to make sure his students really understand one another and their town. Food was a great opportunity, and, uh, and I capitalized on it. He's met with folks from these communities, as well as the Tejon Native American tribe, and even local cattle ranchers. He gets recipes, learns about different food cultures, and figures out ways to engage his students by inviting these groups to share their worlds through powwows, luau's, even barbecue cook-offs on the football field. That way, we all can get along better and, and, and allow our society to be a lot more streamlined because we all belong to one human race. And many students say the class has changed them. Blanca Santiago's parents came here from Oaxaca. I guess sometimes, like when I was smaller, I would feel like I didn't really fit in. 
She says she was embarrassed by her culture. I didn't want to talk about my family's background, what, where they were from, who they were, and like would hide them and keep all my social life like different. But now she says she realizes her parents came here so she could have a better life and go to college, maybe even become a teacher. And she feels proud that other students understand her history. Mr. Shavira shows us that it doesn't matter what culture it is, like we should love and embrace everything that comes with it. Vanessa Gonzalez Silva had a similar experience growing up. She felt like no one liked her because she was Oaxacan. Well, when I was a little girl, I there was there was a couple of people like making fun of us for having dark skin, saying Oaxacans and stuff like that. And that made me feel so like less than them. I I didn't like it. Things got much better as she got older. And now, kids in the culinary class tell her how much they like Oaxacan food. The beans, the homemade tortillas, the salsas. I felt so happy that um, Mr. Chavera, he honestly wanted to know more about Oaxacan, you know, styles and their foods and stuff, their cultures, traditions and stuff like that. And that made me honestly proud of, like, you know, Oaxacans and stuff like that. The students teach each other, but they also share what they've learned in class with their families. In fact, several students told me this class has been their most useful in terms of gaining life skills. So what I do with uh, garlic is I hold it and then in between my thumb and my middle finger, I hold the uh, opposite sides and then in the, with the blade, I put it in the middle in my hands and make little long sticks with the minced garlic. Edgar Sanchez shows me how he slices garlic. Now that he knows how to cook some meals and uses knife safely, he says he steps up for his mother, who works in agriculture and has three other children. I took a step in helping her and by helping her cook and do stuff. Recently, he made a simple Chinese dish, egg drop soup. And I also talked to her about like, like the history of the food and how, why is it common. Common because it's easy to make and perfect to feed children on cold days in the mountains, he told her, in a country far away from Taft, but also right there in their kitchen. Before we leave the town of Taft, let's take a cue from the culinary students and learn a little more about another culture by going to a celebration of San Pablo the Saint. He's important because in the last 20 years, about 700 people from small villages near San Pablo, Oaxaca, have moved to Taft. Here's KVPR's Madi Bolaños. One way Oaxacans celebrate the saint is through dance. Me llamo Luisa Bautista Bautista. Soy de Candelaria, Tijaltepec. Luisa Bautista Bautista is getting ready to perform with about a dozen other women. She wears a white dress that stops at her calves, and it's embroidered with green trimming, and on her chest there are two swans facing each other. It's their tradition, she says. They always wear these clothes in Oaxaca every day. Now, here, the young people wear pants, and some of the older generation do too. But they never lose their tradition, she says. They bring them here. The celebration of San Pablo was canceled the last two years due to the pandemic. But now, with permits from the city of Taft, the event is on again. 
Luisa says she's been eager to celebrate. It makes her feel closer to her family back in Oaxaca. They can't be there in San Pablo, she says, so they celebrate here because there are a lot of people from the village here in Taft. So many people, says Valentino Bautista Silva. He's the president of the San Pablo Federation in Taft, and right now he's making sure everyone is getting enough to eat. At the food table, there's plenty of white rice, chicken with mole, and tortillas. Valentino says Oaxacans come here to work in agriculture. The first person who came here was named Margarito Cruz Silva, he says. He came to Taft and then returned to San Pablo and told everyone there was work here. That was in 1997. Now, Valentino says nearly half of the people from one village near San Pablo now live in Taft. Most of them work in the fields, picking grapes, mandarins, and pistachios. For that reason, they say they have to celebrate San Pablo here in Taft, he says, because he is their saint. Two hours into the celebration, nine men walk into the center of the festivities, each playing a trombone, trumpet, or drum. They're from a village called Santo Domingo Progreso, says Juan Aureño Cruz Garcia. All of the communities on their side of San Pablo play music for the celebration, he says. The band plays, and slowly people start to make their way to the center of the dance floor. Nearly 500 people begin to dance in Taft the way they would have back home in Oaxaca. For the other California, I'm Adi Bolaños in Taft. And that's the other California. Next week, we go to the small rural town of Livingston, where we visit Yamato Colony, a Japanese community of farmers that started in the early 20th century, and an 81-year-old almond farmer who lives in a straw bale house, powers her farm by the sun. This episode was produced by me, Alice Daniel, mixing and sound design by Rob Spate, with editorial help from Polly Stryker, Web support from Alex Burke. Technical support from Don Weaver. Joe Moore is our president and general manager. Special thanks to the KVPR news team. Madi Bolaños, Sarith Hawk, Carrie Klein, and Kathleen Schock. And musician Omar Naray. You've been listening to The Other California. One of the teachers here, um, the, the physics teacher, uh, Mr. Newton, he loves telling this story to uh, the kids in his class. And uh, when he was a little kid, they actually filmed the the greatest of the greatest of times here. And uh, when him and his friends were riding out in the in the fields, uh, a white van pulled up next to him, and uh, they thought they were going to get kidnapped. So they uh, they booked it in the other direction, but. Um, the, the doors opened and out popped Robin Williams uh, saying, hello boys. <laughs>